As I think most of our listeners are aware, serial killers are not a new phenomenon. The term serial killer only dates back 50 years or so, but the idea of a repeat killer has been around since the study of crime began. As I think you're all also aware, American history is filled with such crimes. Bloodstained after bloodstained pages from the past chronicle the horror that has been visited on families, men, women, and children alike. The good old days were never really good, no matter what kind of sepia tent we may have applied to them, and monsters have always been with us. And as I think we've already shown, depravity, murder, and violence certainly weren't limited to the big cities. The isolation, loneliness, and despair of rural life often led to horrific acts that can only be imagined in our worst nightmares. On the chilly morning of November 12, 1917, the body of an unknown woman was discovered on some wooded property outside of the tiny, remote village of Linden, New York. Her identity was unknown, as was that of her killer. She was the first to die, but not the last. More would follow, bringing fear, panic, and paranoia to the town and the surrounding countryside. A killer was on the loose, and to this day, He's never been found. Welcome to American Hauntings, the podcast dedicated to the history, hauntings, and the dark side of American history. And welcome to the last act of this season, Woods and Fields, Dark and Wicked, which is hosted and produced by Cody Beck and written and performed by Troy Taylor. That's me. This has been a strange and twisted season so far. Filled with witchcraft, hexes, curses, mysterious disappearances, and more spirits, sins, and so on than you could count on both hands. But the last act is certainly the strangest and bloodiest part of the season so far, as we delve into the murders that have forever stained America's forest farms and fields. This is episode 18, and maybe the most unsettling so far. These days, there isn't much left of Linden, which is about 40 miles from Buffalo and one of the most sparsely parts of the state. It's now just a cluster of a few houses hidden away in the hills of southern Genesee County in New York. Even during its heyday in the early 20th century, there wasn't a whole lot to see here. Linden was a small farming community of only about 100 people who lived and worked on the surrounding acres. There was a post office back then, though, along with a general store, a railway station, a mill, and a blacksmith shop. Everyone knew one another. They'd been born and raised together. One person's business soon became everyone else's. There were few secrets among the friends, relatives, and neighbors of Linden. Perhaps this is why, when the murders began, the little community was so terrified. There was a killer among them, perhaps someone they knew. The first person to fall victim to the Linden killer was an unknown young woman who was murdered on November 12, 1917. Her body was found in a wooded area of a farmer's property outside of town. Late on that chilly fall morning, the young woman, who was perhaps 25 to 30 years old, was last seen walking up a road that led into the woods. Witnesses later reported she was wearing a black plush coat. There was a man walking with her, although no one really remembered what he looked like or paid much attention to him. A short time later, the man was seen walking out of the woods, alone. Three days later, Frank Hunt, the farmer who owned the property, 
found the woman's body in the underbrush while gathering kindling for his stove. When he kicked aside some loose leaves and branches, he saw the woman's beaten, battered, and bloody face. She'd been so disfigured that she barely looked human. The state police were called to the scene. Linden had no officers of the law, but they never identified the girl and they never made any arrests. For lack of a better name, they called the mystery woman Ruth. The town was shocked to its core, but no one was personally affected. None of them knew the girl. They didn't know anything about her. Perhaps she was involved in something that caused her death. It was a mystery to be sure, but such a strange and random occurrence that it just didn't shake people in the way that it might have. Such things didn't happen within their community. A stranger had been killed, but she must have brought the trouble with her. It was sad, but soon forgotten. Life in the little farm town moved on. But terror returned five years later. On October 17, 1922, the killer claimed a second victim, and this time it was someone that almost everyone in Linden knew. She was no stranger. She was a 73-year-old spinster named Frances Lenora Kimball, a feisty old woman who was best known for her feelings against alcohol consumption and her support for the prohibition laws that had banned alcohol in America. The hardworking, deeply religious woman grew apples and sold milk and eggs at her 60-acre farm off Linden Road near Skates Hill Road. Miss Kimball's body was found hidden in the dark cellar of her home. Like the mysterious Ruth, her head had been bashed in. The alarm over Miss Kimball's absence was first raised by her closest neighbor, Charles Speed, who stopped at her house that morning around 8 a.m. Her door was locked and no one appeared to be about. He returned an hour later, knocked again, and once again received no answer. He soon realized, though, that her cow had not been milked, which was something she did each day faithfully by 6 a.m. Now he became alarmed. He told his wife, who called Mrs. Kimball's best friend, Miss Grace Smith, who, along with Mrs. Robert McWithy, went to the house. They had a key to get in, but looked around to see if she might be busy somewhere outside. They were too polite to go into her home unannounced if they didn't have to. Well, Frances wasn't in the yard. She wasn't in the barn either. The place seemed deserted. Miss Smith called Justice Morris Nellen, the local magistrate, but his search of the property offered no clues until he found that the telephone line had been cut. It was time to call the state police, he realized. Officers arrived and began scouring the entire property. During a search of the cellar, State Police Corporal White illuminated a dark area with his flashlight and saw the body of Miss Kimball stuffed under a shelf, covered with an old door. Her head had been bashed in with a heavy object. The Batavia Daily News gave a gruesome account of the discovery. Wedged into an apple bin, lying on her side, terribly disfigured, her brains protruding, her cheekbones broken, the body of the aged woman presented a spectacle to haunt the dreams of the most stone-hearted for many a night to come. The newspaper's crime reporter called Miss Kimball, quote, the manifest object of the pent-up and deliberate fury of the animal's blows. An autopsy showed that Miss Kimball had been hit about 20 times on the right side of her head with a heavy instrument. The beating had been so savage that fragments of her false teeth were found scattered all over the cellar floor. Even worse for the delicate sensibilities of the elderly woman and her friends, 
semen was found on her clothing. The doctors announced that the time of her death had been around 6 p.m. the previous evening. Percy Fleming, who lived just down the road, had seen her in the yard at 5.30 p.m. as he passed by her home. After the discovery of the corpse by the state troopers, the county sheriff, district attorney, and coroner were summoned to the scene. The bulk of the investigation was turned over to William Doyle of the Doyle Detective Agency in Rochester, New York. In those days, with most police departments, especially in rural areas, ill-equipped to handle murder investigations, private detective agencies were often retained to carry out investigations. Detectives, along with state troopers, questioned everyone who lived within a mile of the crime scene, including Miss Kemble's two elderly brothers, who had been away picking apples at the time of the murder. The Batavia Daily News offered a $100 reward for information leading to the arrest of the killer. On October 21st, Carl Myers, a cousin of the dead woman, found a sharp pointed rock with dried blood and gray hair on it in the corner of the cellar. Apparently it had been missed by the police officers who'd combed the scene. Well, the coroner determined it had been the murder weapon. Detectives believed that whoever the killer was, he was familiar with the layout of the house. After the murder, he'd locked all the doors and windows, including the front door, which he bolted when he left. The police and detectives had no clue and no way to trace the killer. However, a local newspaper reported one detail that apparently came from an eyewitness, but was not mentioned in later accounts of the crime. It noted, Late on Monday evening, an automobile was driven into the Kimball farm and stood for a short time among the trees. There's no mention of the car ever being identified or if it was linked to anyone in the area, but it does become important in some later theories about the case. As the case stalled, the County of Genesee Board of Supervisors posted a reward for $1,000 for information leading to an arrest, but no one stepped forward to identify the killer. Whoever he was, he vanished without a trace. Again. But the murders were far from over. The worst was still to come. A year and a half later, on March 11, 1924, three more Linden residents were brutally slain. Thomas and Hattie Whaley lived in a home in the center of the village. That afternoon, Mabel Morse, the wife of the proprietor of the general store, left the store to visit their home. When Mrs. Morse didn't return by the time her favorite radio program came on the air, one of her employees went to look for her. When he arrived at the Whaley house, he found it on fire. When the flames were put out, a gruesome discovery was made. Well, the newspapers of the day provided lurid details of the crime, and they immediately linked it to the Kimball murder of the previous year. The link to the mysterious Ruth would not be made until much later. The killer, called a maniac by the Buffalo newspaper, had shot both Whaley's and repeatedly struck Mrs. Morse in the head. The killer put their bodies in a pile, covered them with old rugs, and set the rugs on fire. Neighbors found the bodies after breaking into the house to put out the flames the fire investigators believed had been started to try to cover up the crime. Well, Thomas Whaley, age 65, had worked for many years as a section boss on the Erie Railroad. His wife, Hattie, was 58, and neither of them were known to have any enemies. Mrs. Morse, 51, had stopped by the Whaley house to get some milk and visit with her friend, a regular thing for her to do. She'd evidently surprised the killer at his work. 
According to the autopsy, Mrs. Morse had been clubbed to death and the Whaley's had both been shot by a 32 caliber revolver. Mrs. Morse had left the general store for the Whaley home at about 6.30 p.m., taking her milk pail with her. The Whaley's had a dairy cow and provided Mrs. Mills with milk each day. Usually each evening, a group of people from the town gathered at the store to listen to a favorite radio program, which Mrs. Morse never missed. Fearing that she wouldn't return in time for the show, Myron Smith had hurried over to the Whaley home to remind her it was about to start. He was joined by a friend, Milton Kettle, who worked with Mr. Whaley on the railroad. He knew that Mr. Whaley had been sick for several days and thought Mrs. Morse might have stayed at the house to help take care of him. Myron Smith knocked on the door when he arrived, but no one answered. Oddly, he noticed that all the curtains on the windows had been drawn. After calling out, he tried the door and found it locked. Peering into the house, he saw smoke billowing about inside. He and Milton broke the window near the kitchen door and hurried inside. They were filled with horror when they saw the burned bodies stacked on the floor and covered with smoldering rugs. The young men rushed from the house to spread the alarm. Their quick actions kept the flames from spreading. The bodies had been blackened and some of their clothing had been scorched away, but they were not burned beyond recognition. A few neighbors who rushed to the scene managed to use pails of water to put out the fire before the house was too badly damaged. Call was made to the state police, and when they arrived, they deduced that the Whaley's and Mrs. Morse had been killed or nearly killed in other rooms and then dragged into the front room, where they were finished off with the handle of a pickaxe. A later autopsy would show that Thomas Whaley had been shot in the neck. His wife had sustained a single gunshot wound to her head. Mrs. Morse, though, had been clubbed to death with the wooden pick handle. Paper, bed clothing, and rugs were then wrapped around the bodies and saturated in kerosene oil, which came from a can found in the house. The killer's intentions had been for the entire house to burn down, taking the bodies and all the evidence with it. He closed all the curtains, even going as far as to nail a piece of cloth over one window that wasn't covered so that he wouldn't be seen. When he left the house, he locked all the doors to prevent the fire from being discovered. If not for the arrival of the two young men, his plan likely would have succeeded. The newspapers were quick to point out that the circumstances in the Whaley-Morse murders were similar to those in the murder of Francis Kimball in 1922, and also another fire that had seemed unrelated at the time. On September 23, 1923, someone had tried to burn down the home of Justice of the Peace Morris Neelan, which adjoined the Kimball home, but the fire had been put out. The police had ruled it arson, but no suspects were ever found. The new investigation became heated at once. George Morse offered a $1,000 reward for the capture of the murderer of his wife, and the village was overwhelmed by the police. The Whaley's had been well-liked and people demanded action. They interviewed everyone, questioned residents, harassed travelers, and locked up tramps who were commonly seen passing through Linden on the railroad. Soon, the Genesee County Sheriff's Department and the New York State Police shared the investigation with reporters throughout Western New York, with private detectives hoping to earn the reward, and even with sightseers who clogged the narrow, snow-covered roads. Buffalo Police Captain Joseph Whitwell, a noted fingerprint expert at a time when the science was just taking hold in America, was retained and examined the scene. Unfortunately, though, fingerprints were of little value since the house had been so badly damaged by water from putting out the fire. 
Some believe that the murders were the result of a robbery since purses had been emptied and watches and cash were missing. Others thought it was a maniac who had traveled along the railroad line. As the investigation proceeded, police became more convinced the murderer was a local resident and concentrated their efforts around the community. No one was allowed to leave the area unless first questioned by the police. But as word spread about the murders, curiosity seekers from Batavia, Rochester, and Buffalo swarmed to the area, impeding the investigation by causing traffic jams on the local roads. Residents were questioned and then questioned again, but no solid leads ever developed. The state police kept a constant presence in Linden, with one trooper assigned to stay in town, available for immediate duty, and two others on horses patrolling the surrounding area. The police became so desperate that when it was suggested that a photograph of the murder victim's eyes be taken with the belief that an image of the killer would be imprinted on the eyeball as the last vision of the victim, the photographs were taken. Now, if you're saying to yourself that doesn't work, you'd be right. Even though several newspapers claimed that the method had been used to solve several important criminal cases, it hadn't. But again, as in the Kimball murder, time passed and the case went cold. The few leads the police obtained went nowhere, but interest in the case remained high and people were increasingly frightened. The available rewards grew larger. In addition to Mr. Morse's offer of $1,000, the Genesee Board of Supervisors passed a resolution to offer $5,000 to the person furnishing information leading to the arrest and conviction of the Slayers. With funds coming in from newspapers and other sources, the reward total eventually climbed to $8,000. Pleas for information were broadcast over the radio, but no substantial leads appeared. And with so many cases that received wide attention, crackpots and kooks came looking for a moment in the spotlight. In March 1924, John Vitowski, who had been recently released from the Dannemora State Hospital for the Criminally Insane, confessed to the Linden Slains. He apparently gave a reasonable account of how he committed the crimes, but he later recanted, and it was proven he was somewhere else at the time of the murders. A few of the investigators continued to believe he was involved, but with a solid alibi, he couldn't be linked to the crimes. Later that summer, Linden Postmaster Ira J. Page received an anonymous letter from a friend that was postmarked Detroit, Michigan. The letter asked him to warn the village of an impending murder, which was then being planned. It urged the postmaster to notify the authorities to be on their guard and to watch and to pray. Well, more letters like this one followed, but none of them amounted to anything. In time, the frenzy calmed down and the Linden murders moved off page one of the newspapers and eventually vanished from the pages altogether. If there were any clear connections between the murder of the unknown woman in 1917, the Kimball murder of 1922 and the triple slains of 1924, they were never discovered. Over time, they just became known simply as the unsolved Linden murders. No one was ever arrested for any of the murders. No motive was ever found, nor was the identity of the murderer or murderers ever determined. Gruesome and perplexing as they were, the Linden murders soon faded from the public's memory. But the story wasn't over. Not quite yet. It was later revived by author Rob Thompson, who, with help from a retired FBI agent, 
took a new look at the old evidence and came to believe he'd figured out the identity of the killer. Thompson, a former mental health counselor, began delving into the murders, going through hundreds of pages of police reports, including the private notes left behind by investigators on the case. He was assisted in his research by Mark E. Safrick, a retired FBI agent and former violent crime analyst at the FBI Academy. They came to the conclusion that the most viable suspect in the murders was a man named Andrew Michael. According to Thompson, Michael died at the age of 77 in a Rochester mental asylum in 1960. Although newspaper reports state that he was questioned by the police several times about the murders, he was never charged. There was also no physical evidence that linked Michael to the crimes. However, at the time of the murders, Michael lived in Linden near Miss Kimball and the Whaley's. He'd worked on local farms as a hired hand and had also worked at a steel plant and on the railroad. Shortly after the Whaley-Morse murders, he moved away from Linden to nearby Attica. Thompson came up with some compelling reasons that suggest he may be right about Michael being the killer, namely that he had grudges against Kimball, the Whaley's, and Mrs. Morse. Kimball, an advocate against liquor, had reported Michael for illegally making hard cider. Months before she was killed, she'd argued with him over the drinking habits of her brother, William Kimball. She'd also appeared as a witness against him in an animal cruelty case. Michael had been fined $25 after he was accused of beating a horse with a piece of wood so violently that one of the horse's eyes had been knocked out. Locals knew he had a violent streak. According to the investigator's notes, Thomas Whaley had identified Michael as a suspect in the 1923 arson case. He'd also refused to lend Michael money, and Mrs. Whaley had once told a neighbor that she suspected that Michael had killed Miss Kimball. Michael was angry with the Morse family, too. Just two weeks before the murders at the Whaley home, George Morse had sent Michael a letter cutting off his credit at the general store until he paid off a debt of $160. Michael had never been as silent about his dislike of Miss Kimball or the Whaley's or the Morse's. While he repeatedly told the police he had nothing to do with the murders, a man named Brad Burroughs told detectives he once heard Michael make angry threats to kill Francis Kimball, someone from the Morse family, and others in 1916, vowing he would kill him if it took him 10 or 15 years to do it. There were others who also had run-ins with Michael, including Justice of the Peace Neyland, who were later shocked when suspicious fires were started on their property. Witnesses, including Thomas Whaley, told police they saw Michael leaving the Neyland arson fire scene, but again, he was never charged in that case either. According to Thompson, Michael worked clearing wood in the area where the mystery woman's body was found in 1917, which may link him to that crime as well. But the police never charged Michael with any of the murders. Twelve days after the Whaley-Morse murders, police told a Buffalo newspaper that Michael had been, quote, freed of suspicion after lengthy questioning. At that time, a detective noted that Michael only had one finger on his right hand because of a sawmill accident that occurred when he was young. That one finger was twice the size of an ordinary finger, the police said, and wouldn't fit into the trigger guard of the type of handgun used to shoot the Whaley's. But was this really enough to rule him out? The victims had been shot at close range, which could have been done with either hand. 
Michael also had a tendency to use a wooden club, which unfortunately he had demonstrated on that horse. But not everyone is convinced by Thompson's theory. Michael is, of course, long dead and cannot defend himself. Court documents show that a petition was filed in Wyoming County Court in 1958, asking a judge to declare Michael mentally incompetent. Two years later, he died in a Rochester mental hospital. So if he was the killer, the secret of the murders died with him. And with everyone else involved with the case long since dead, there really can't be any conclusive answers. But even today, theories remain. It's been suggested that the murders were committed by a transient, someone who occasionally passed through Linden, perhaps hopping rides on freight trains. Police did question several vagrants, but never charged any of them either. Others have suggested that the murders were committed by a deranged person who lived at the old Genesee County Poorhouse, a building that once housed the poor, the elderly, and mental patients who couldn't fend for themselves. Now known as Rolling Hills Asylum and believed to be haunted, the poorhouse closed in the 1970s and wasn't far away from the murders. So what happened? And who committed the Linden murders? Was Rob Thompson right? Was it Andrew Michael? And if so, why was he never charged? All the evidence pointed to him, and yet the police questioned him and let him go. What did they know in the 1920s that we don't know today? I know. Those are a lot of unanswered questions. But honestly, I don't think these crimes will ever be solved. I think we're going to have to tuck them away with the other rural murders that will continue to remain a mystery as the years go by. Have you ever wanted to learn a new language? And I don't mean like spells or incantations to trap spirits, you weirdos. I mean like a new language that could help you start communicating with more people on this plane today. Then I need to tell you about Rosetta Stone. Look, you know the brand, you know the name. They have the expertise and a 30-year legacy, which makes them more qualified than ever to help you learn a new language today. They've helped millions of people build the fluency and confidence to speak new languages. Now, this is the part where Troy would tell me that I made some kind of grammatical error, but he's not here right now, so like, I don't know, it's like speaking tongues. Rosetta Stone focuses on speaking practice for real-life scenarios to get you ready for real conversations with real people. Or maybe you can even learn how to use some different types of Ouija boards. I don't know. Either way, Rosetta Stone can help you learn faster and retain your new language better. Honestly, Rosetta Stone really would have come in handy for season four of New Orleans because I know we butchered some of those French names and I apologize once again. Now you all know I have a nine to five job when I'm not at the podcast factory and Rosetta Stone actually helped me not make a total fool out of myself while I was in Brazil interviewing celebrities. Obrigado. And now I want to help you. So don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, American Hauntings podcast listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. Rosetta Stone, how language is learned. Wait, by the way, Troy, like where do words come from? Hey, no, don't, 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 don't walk away. Oh, Troy, where do words?
What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. No, I'm good. <laughs> I'm good. All right. Well, thanks for tuning in to the American Hauntings Podcast, the show where we discuss history, hauntings, legends, lore, apartment hunting, and the dark side of American <laughs> history. We are now in season six of the podcast. Woods and fields, dark and wicked. Okay. I mean, that was pretty good, but I feel like I know I was a little off on that one. I know, I know. Well, I well never we, know. we were had had we were having a conversation before we started. So and both of us were um let's just say we're not peak at the moment either one of us we're both a little worn down but we are gonna do this oh we're gonna gonna do this i'm your co-host cody (laughs) beck and with me is my my worn down co-host author historian crime buff the founder of american hauntings troy taylor hey 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 oh yeah so it's sunday night we've both had a long week long day yeah but we have a job to do and like i said damn it we're gonna do it that's right we are we are so because I mean, actually, we should be excited or at least I mean, I, you know, I guess you on a lower scale because this although this is like one of the only events of the year that you get to participate in. Uh, but we just launched Dead of Winter uh, yes. on Friday. So right before you're hearing this podcast, we just put uh, Dead of Winter out there. We we posted everything. We've got all the stuff going. It's February 11th, 2023 at the Mineral Springs in Alton, of course. Um, as most of you know, for the most part, it is a free event um, designed to raise money for local food banks. Um, what you do instead of buying a ticket to the daytime event, you bring a canned good or non-perishable item or, or whatever that will help the food banks. Uh, because by winter time or the end of winter, when we usually do this thing, um, the food banks have, have made it through Christmas, but they're struggling. So we do all we can to try to, to bolster things up for the rest of the cold weather season. But this year we decided to add something different. We're also in in addition to just the the free tickets, we're going to do some VIP packages, a couple of different ones. Um, Both packages will will come with reserved seating. That's something people always ask us for. So the, the front the front seats are all going to be reserved seating this year for the people with the lanyards. Uh, you'll get swag. You'll get a shirt, dead of winter shirt. Um, one of the VIP packages uh, includes your lunch. Uh, I'm going to take everybody to lunch over at Bluff City Grill. So that'll be fun. And um, in keeping with the 2023 conference theme, we're going to have all female speakers at dead of winter, too. Um, the Sisterhood of Magic and Wonder are coming back, which everybody liked them last year. They were amazing. Amelia Cotter, uh, my friend from up north in the Chicago area, Emily Whalen from Wisconsin, Courtney Block. Um, and then we're going to do, of course, Cody and I will be, uh, Cody will be in drag. 
Um, and the, no, that's, we not gonna, new, that's not a new thing. I though. know it's, it's not, just... it isn't, you're right. So, but we're going to do an American hauntings podcast episode. Um, that's going to have like a hell hath no fury theme to keep in the, with the women theme. Um, so, and then of course we have after hour events, um, gallery reading with the sisterhood ghost hunt at the mineral Springs. Uh, I'm going to be doing one of the dinners, the after hour dinners, uh, the, I'm going to be doing, uh, St. Louis spirits and sins. Uh, that's one that I did brand new this fall and it has like three seats left. So we're going <laughs> to, we're going to go ahead and do it. I'm going to do it again for, uh, for dead of winter. So it should be fun. So what's, what's that one about? Um, it is the, it is, it is not the limps or the St. Louis exercise. It's all the other St. Louis stuff uh-huh. that doesn't get covered in, you know, most things that people talk about ghost stories and things in St. Louis, some of the more obscure stuff. We're going to be doing a lot of that. And uh, there's, cause there's some, as you know, there's some really great stories, um, mm-hmm. including, you know, patient's worth and all that That's kind of favorite. stuff, which you love. I know. So that one's going to be some, some in-depth behind the scenes on some of the other St. Louis haunts. So that's the plan. So anyway, the, the tickets for the VIP packages and the after hour events are on sale. Now, uh, if you're just coming to the daytime event, just start saving your canned goods and mark the date on the calendar. And it is February 11th, 2023. So that will be coming up. Um, also coming up um, is this this Friday after the podcast comes out. Uh, the new issue of the Morbid Curious is out, issue number six. It is our New Orleans themed issue, so the whole thing is devoted to New Orleans. It's a it's a really fun issue. So uh, we still have some dinner and spirits events coming up for fall. Some uh, the St. Louis Spirits and Sins I mentioned, the Exorcism. Hollywood Horrors, American Witch, Edgar Allan Poe, uh, Spirits of Christmas coming up in December. So it's it's already started to be busy. Um, this coming weekend is going to be slammed. And then it's slammed all the way through pretty much Thanksgiving. So, you know, if you're looking for something to do this fall, we got plenty of things for you. So Yeah. So, OK, the, the new Morbid Curious, Um, has there been a break? Did I miss one? Or has there been a break for a little bit in, in the release? Well, we do them twice a year. So oh, we only okay, do it two times okay. a year. So one in the spring and one in the fall. OK, um, I don't know so, why I felt like they were hitting. Um, yeah, no. And, well, we have done a couple of special issues. We'll stick in there out of the blue that we'd announced the last minute. Uh, but number five came out back in the spring. And then this is number six. So, okay, yeah. that makes a lot of sense. Oh, oh yeah. also, I uh, I just I guess Troy and I were talking about you know being worn down and stuff. I got back from Tennessee uh, twenty minutes ago. Twenty minutes ago, um, yeah, drove by a bunch of signs for Bell Witch stuff. Yeah, yeah, um, but didn't have time to stop. I was going to ask you about oh, that if you had I a wanted. chance, but I had a feeling that you probably didn't. So. I didn't. Uh, I I was. Oh, I really wish we could. We did stop at uh, in Metropolis. Um, oh yeah, yeah, sure. Superman and all oh, yeah, that. Of course. Yeah. You're passing right by. How do you not? How do you the not? giant Superman? Come on. You know, yes. uh, and it was great. I remember I, when I used to go that way years ago. I mean, we're talking about, you know, 15 years ago or so going down to like the Bell Witch Cave and stuff. And I'd go through Metropolis. I would always stop on the way down because I was so excited because they had a Sonic there. Well, oh, see, at the that time, was, that was there weren't thing. any Sonics up here. So it was really exciting to stop and get, you know, like a Coney dog and tater tots because you couldn't get them up here, you know? So I'd go, I'd go to there and sometimes I'd stop. There's a cool little fort right there too, that Fort Massac. There's a hmm. surprise. You passed it on your way to see Superman. Probably sure. just didn't even realize it because it's off in a park, but it's a cool little like, you know, revolutionary war fort 
you know, it's oh, nice. cool. Yeah, it's it's um I I don't know much about the town really, mm. um but I do uh, always enjoy the Superman stuff. You can't yeah you can't pass it up, man. So. No, I loved it. When they did the Sonic stuff, um, were they on roller skates? Was that ever really a thing? No, did- well, they they must have been. It wasn't there, so I must have missed that time period, you know. But I think when Sonic first started, they were still doing roller skates like they used to back in the you know, in the happy days era. Seems like a liability. <laughs> yeah. It's see, I, it seems dangerous to me, but what do I know? So well, we went there and checked out the, the gift shops and stuff around there too, just because it, yeah. was, it was, you know, it was super, I could have spent so much time in there just nerding oh, out. Know. But as soon as we pulled up, I was like, how big is this Superman statue? Can oh. I build a bigger one? Just to, <laughs> it's, to, you know, it's big. It is it big. It's like, yeah. yeah, it'd be funny. Yeah. Prank, the but other, I don't it have the reminds, When I see those things, like, they always crack me up this time because over on the other side of the state um, is Chester, mm-hmm. Illinois, which is down kind of it's southwest of like the Alton area, Belleville and all that. It's down along the river. And there's a big prison down there, which I think is like their main claim to fame. But um, the guy who invented uh, Popeye the Sailor is from there. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. So they have a, a Popeye the Sailor statue like in a park that you can go see. It's not as big as Superman at all but it's there but they also have they have like a popeye museum downtown didn't so all those people were real people that he based all those characters off of i'm not kidding it's pretty funny didn't that guy also end up or maybe it wasn't the guy who invented it but something around that didn't he have like a feud with like ann rice or something like in new orleans like i no that's a popeye guy i don't (laughs) beyond that i have no idea but not the guy that invented Popeye, dude. That was like in the twenties. I feel <laughs> she, I like think she was born. <laughs> I have to think about it. It was from the Doughboys podcast, and they were talking about all these things together. I'll have to go back and check. Oh man, it wasn't Popeye though. <laughs> mm. I mean, maybe it's maybe it's the Popeye chicken people. Oh, maybe they are from New Orleans. Okay, maybe that's what. Yeah, well, I yeah, also yeah. know that you know, I know what? that's what it is because I think I when we did our um, when we did our New Orleans graveyard episode, I was talking about the people where all the different people were buried in the cemeteries, and I mentioned the Popeye Chicken guy. So I'll bet that's who had a feud with Ann. I don't he, know why. Yes, I mean, yeah, I'm not and, sure why. So she wasn't making fried chicken that I'm aware of, but and, I promise it was not the Popeye the same. Sure, man. no, no, no. You're I, you're right. Then and okay. and thank you, thank you for clarifying. But I do. Remember remember now they had i guess back then they would like show um you know children's cartoons or whatever and they were playing popeye and then they would show a commercial or or a sponsorship or something from the popeye's chicken oh. and they they ended up having a lawsuit because they tried like he said no we're yeah. not associated with this it's a coincidence yeah yeah, yeah. and it was a big different. thing i yeah. see okay, okay. so yeah. now okay so you're you've got a whole bunch of stuff in one episode conflated yeah yes, yeah that yes. totally makes sense but yeah, that that does make sense because oh, there's no connection between the characters. Yeah, got are it. You, are uh, you looking forward to that uh, that inter- interview with the vampire? Uh, yes, show? I think we talked I about it a little bit. I think it looks fantastic. Yeah, and what it, a it does. fantastic idea to make Lewis like a Creole guy. Yeah, why, why why Anne Rice never thought of that? I don't know, but that was a great idea, and and I like that actor. I think it's going to be great. I'm really looking forward to it. I'm excited. You are- you also told me about a movie that I've heard a lot of really great things about, uh, the Bar- Barbarian. Yeah. Oh yeah, man, you got to go see it. It's oh, okay. I'm excited. Don't worry, it's gonna be on my Halloween or my top of the year list. Trust me. Oh, that's that's on Halloween. That's December. We do that one, but right, it'll be on that list because that is it is one of my favorite horror films from this year. 
Great. Um, I've heard good gonna, things. And, and just don't, you don't want to know anything going in. What you I'm not see going in the to. trailer, that's all you need to know going okay. into it. And actually, I, I will tell you this without spoiling anything. Sure. The trailer is a misdirection. But okay. just watch the trailer. You got to see it. I can't, I, I can't believe you didn't get like a screening for it for work. I, or I had n- nothing, huh. nothing, man. Wow, we, we've something. barely even written about it. I haven't Maybe heard. they didn't know that it was going to do what it's done, but I mean, it's really taken off. I mean, it's yeah. getting, everybody is raving about it. At least anybody I know that's seen it and all the write-ups have been great, but I, I really loved it. There was one scene and I, I've not given anything away other than to say I came completely out of my seat. No there shit. Was one scene. Yeah, I jumped so high. I mean, I was airborne <laughs> <You know>, for <laughs> a second. It's, it's good. It's a good movie. Awesome. Clever. I, Very clever. I, can, I cannot wait. Um, On the other hand, the invitation is not clever. It's oh. horrible. Uh, it and it's is the, it's a the second lifetime movie, with that movie. It's a lifetime movie, pretty much, mm-hmm. uh, about Dracula, except not. Mm. And it's it's painful. It's it is painful. Jeez. Um, I mean, it's too bad because it's got great actors. The film is beautifully made. I mean, there's so many good things about it, but it's the worst kind. You know, those you know those horror films that are you know a lifetime movie kind of thing. They can be fun. They can be suspenseful at least. Yeah. Like The Devil in Ohio is like an eight episode lifetime movie. It was at okay. least entertaining. Uh huh. The invitation though was that was rough. Oh was boy. Rough. But is it? Yeah. Is, there is the movie yeah. that I do like. That's the invitation. The the Logan. Oh uh, yeah, no, it's not that one. This right, is right, the this right. is a, the same name. For but anybody no, the, okay. the Logan Marshall Green movie. Marsh, is yes. that Marshall Green? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, you're right. I, I not I, Tom Hardy. The, the, the not Tom Hardy guy. Exactly. I ha- I think I've seen that probably eight times at least, maybe more. That's a great one. I love that movie. I will rewatch it and see new things every time. I really? love watching it with people who've never seen it too and that, just go just keep watching just keep watching you know, you know that one seems to me too now that i was thinking about it, i was trying to think about what that not what does that remind me of but i guess because it came first but it almost seems like i feel like jordan peele sat down and watched that movie a whole bunch and uh-huh. then like made some of his stuff because it uh-huh. seems reminiscent see of like that. an us thing it or does. something yeah and it's it's a few years it's a few years before get out at least a couple. yeah 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 so yeah but yeah that's yeah that's a great movie so awesome yeah i like those settings of um people at a dinner party and you don't know what's gonna happen next i watched another one the other night and then this is not gonna be on my list either but it was interesting uh who invited them um yeah okay you know it's a small cast um but even though i figured out where it was going it was entertaining because the actors were so good they were able to carry off what's essentially a four-person movie and um I liked it. I liked it a lot. It was very entertaining. So that's yeah, awesome. And a lot, a yeah. lot of my coworkers um, just got done with Tiff, and I've heard uh, good things also about. It's not a horror movie, but um, Knives Out, The Glass Onion. I've heard great things about. Oh, that really? Too. Yeah. I, well, I sure enjoyed the first one. It was a yeah, lot. Yeah, it's fun. great. So I'm looking forward to this one. So I think it'll be good. You know, the new Hellraiser is going is straight to like Hulu or something. Yeah. You know yeah. Yeah. I don't know what it'll be like, but I'm I'm curious. I'll watch it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's some stuff coming out next month. A lot of stuff coming I'm excited. out. Excited. It'll yeah. be tough keeping up. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's with it's everything already, else. Dude, I, got it's already. I don't know if you've heard. I'm kind of busy in October. I don't 
I you, no, it doesn't. You don't look like a guy with the I background know, right? I see right now that yeah, would be busy exactly. in a spooky yeah, month. It's weird. It's very weird. <sighs> okay, well let's we'll get out of Troy and Cody's. Well, let's corner. get out of this stuff. Let's let's get into this episode. So um, yes, uh, or, Liz, or do you still have anything you want to do before we get there? We doing reviews. We doing any of that stuff? I got. I have one listener review okay. I wanted to to bring up. So this is one's from UTB. It is not. Um, <laughs> I I screenshotted that to my friends and I yeah, was like, yeah. and and I don't want Thank to do. You. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it anymore. Um, and the this one's from Benquo93. I don't know if it's at French or trying to get me to pronounce French or if I'm just missing it, but it's titled A Truly Phenomenal Podcast. It says, if you're interested in history, true crime, and hauntings, but you haven't listened to this podcast yet, you absolutely have to start now. Troy Taylor and Cody Beck make an outstanding team, and I can say that after almost five years of listening to each season and every episode get more exciting and more enthralling, please <laughs> check it out. Have we been doing this for five years? I think so. Yeah. Holy. About it. I mean, what season is this? This is season six, six so yeah, yeah, I think that's about right. Because, you know, when I put together a season, it, <laughs> they keep getting the longer. Year, so. Longer and longer. Uh Okay, so let's wait the next one. No, (laughs) okay, let's let's dive into this story. Um, something I wanted to say. I just stayed in not a creepy cabin last night, but it was it was an Airbnb. Was it it a cabin in the woods? It was a cabin in the woods, kind of. It's right. It's right next to this venue in uh, Tallium, I think, Tennessee, by this this venue called the Cavern, which is in a cave. And there are someone, I guess, probably, I don't know if they had the property before or what, but they said, hey, like, I'm going to put five little cabins right here as Airbnbs. It's like an eight minute walk to this venue. Oh, cool, um, man. Out in the middle of nowhere. And um, so I was like, what was going on at the venue? I saw this band called Copeland and they have, you know, a lot of albums, but they decided to do. Uh, renditions of a lot of their favorite songs with an orchestra behind them really um, and then they so they had an orchestra in the cave and then the band oh, wow like, that's cool man it was yeah, it was amazing drive. it was yeah. I, I was by the that's time we cool. got there i was so annoyed and i was like i'm so tired of driving uh-huh. and they played their first song and i was like this was totally worth it, it was <laughs> yeah, yeah, drive. yeah yeah everything yeah. so uh yeah check that out i think it's called revolving doors it just came out like three days Did you ago see but the clips from the post malone concert in st louis last night no, I did not. Oh, yeah. He accidentally, somebody left a trap door open where they put equipment through on the no. stage. And man, he stepped right in it and went down hard. Oh, I man. mean, really hard. Damn. I mean, he okay? slammed onto the stage. He fractured a couple of three ribs, I think. No but shit. Yeah. So I guess they took him off and he was off for about 15 minutes and then came back on like, they must have wrapped him up and he was holding his side and did had not a little shorter set. So he said yeah. the next time he comes, he'll do an extra hour just for St. Louis because everybody was so great. I so. see. It's hilarious to me when Justin Bieber falls through the stage. Yeah, it's not with somebody it. I like. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. no, uh, he just yeah. seems like a even though he he, he looks insane. I think he's a yeah. good guy. And I like his dude. music. I know. I know. Oh, that's I know. I, I, I haven't yeah, had you, service. You'll see him. You'll probably see it pop up with work stuff because oh. I've been seeing the clip of him falling and man it just hurts to see it jeez so, well I, and I, we are now off on something else i know i know back to the episode <laughs> lucky this is a short episode uh, yeah, so we don't know, have to worry too man. much okay <laughs> let's dive in november 12 1917 uh, a body of a woman is found in linden new york and it, it's believed to be the work of, eventually of a serial killer 
small town, not a lot going on. Small really town, a lot of, lot of rumors. Yeah. Yeah. Um, an unknown woman seen going into the woods with a man and is later found disfigured. They call this mystery woman Ruth. And then, uh, what, five years later, there's a next victim, 73-year-old spinster named Frances Lenora Kimball. She also had her head bashed in. Um, I'm, I'm okay. So here, I know, I know what you're going to say, but go ahead. I bet I know what you're going to ask me. Well, I'm curious about, I'm thinking, do a lot of these, if, if say this is the same serial killer, it does these three murders we're going to talk about. Like, Mm -hmm. is it, do you think that sometimes they're like, okay, I got to chill so I don't get caught. Or do you think they don't care and it's luck of the draw? Or like, do you think, how do you, if you have a bloodlust, how do you control yourself? I'm trying to get into the mind of like a psychopath. I know. And you know, this one's funny because, you know, they, they link these together by the fact that, you know, everybody had their head bashed in. Okay. Uh-huh. And, and that was very similar. And all the victims were in this tiny, tiny town. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it was almost like they're like, well, it's got to be connected. It's got to be. So it depends on how you look at it. There's, there's several ways you can look at this and explain why the murders are spaced the way they are. Okay. You can say that it is a madman traveling by train, which is one of the theories they have. Yeah. Someone just passing through the area finds this a place where there's no police you know the county cops are far away so you pretty much could do anything you want to and be gone or as the one investigator thought belatedly years later thought that found a way to connect all the victims except for the woman which again they said you know since he did work that property he had a connection to it, the guy that he picked as a suspect. So which kind of made sense when you, especially because the last two murders were, were, were closer together and they were a lot more linked than the other ones were. And all of them tied back to that one guy. He had a mm-hmm. grudge against all of them, you know, so it, that kind of made sense. But again, there's no way to prove it. Right. And that that's Andrew, Michael, Michelle. Yeah. Yeah. Michael. Yeah. Michael. Yeah. And I'm, so, yeah, I'm, I'm curious about things like this, where is it like, you know, I would imagine a person like this is probably violent before that, but somebody always has, you know, their first murder sure. and then they make, uh, you know, semen's found on the clothing of, uh, of Francis, who's 73 years old, but then at least what we know, not with the other people. And so it's like, is it somebody figuring out kind of what they like to well, do and what they don't, how they I don't work. know. You know, if, if we go on, if we go by the idea that, that this uh, retired FBI guy and the, and the psychologist were right, this guy, um, it totally makes sense. The things that he did, especially with this old lady, because, you know, she was the, the, the old bitty who lived down the street who had her nose in everybody's business and was complaining about, you know, alcohol and the temperance movement and all that kind of stuff. Right. And she had a grudge against him and had reported him and gotten him in trouble. And, you know, as as most people who are investigators can tell you that rape is not necessarily a crime of lust. It's a crime of, of violence and, of and power and domination. And he showed her in the in the worst possible way. For right. her, for an old lady like this, who probably was a, you know, 73 year old virgin or whatever. I mean, it's very possible. And so he showed her, you know, mm-hmm. he, he made his point. Um, if 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 it was that guy or it could have been a random serial killer who did the same thing. Yeah. You know, but why the other ones, you know, why attack three people in a house? 
you know, kill one of them in a different way and then set the house on fire. Yeah, it makes sense. It makes sense if it's that guy, because mm -hmm. he'd already been in trouble for other arson fires, including uh -huh. the Justice of the Peace that had investigated Francis Kimball's murder or not right. investigated, but at least was around checking things out. Right. I mean, it does kind of see like, you know, or uh, progression or like learning and adapting, maybe, yeah. I guess. And and, yeah. and, and, but, but then also, sure. yeah. But also, I'm sure, again, it wouldn't have been, he's probably set a lot more fires than even things we would know oh, about. Yeah. Well, and if it was some passing guy committing these murders, think how many other ones there probably were mm -hmm. in little towns like this. I mean, you know, we had an entire season on the the, the axe man. So, yeah. I mean, here's a guy who was passing through small towns and they were crimes of opportunity, you mm -hmm. know, but he had a signature. Well, this guy, his signature was a, a, obviously quite different than the axe man's. But for all we know, it was a guy just like that. And no one's ever connected those murders, just this... like all the other murders. Nobody connected all those. Nothing was ever connected to Villisca and still until research started to be done and you know, that's what these guys were doing when they were connecting everything to this Michael guy. Did you um, did you ever have any other potential cases that you might have thought be connected or did you look at the railroad kind of angle more? Or I absolutely did. As a matter of fact, um, there were some other ones that I felt didn't fit um, that just didn't really work the way they were supposed to. Um, they, the, the signatures didn't match. Um, I had one that I was sure that was connected, but it turns out, um, as it turned out, it was connected to the other murders we're going to talk about at the end of this season. Okay. Uh, so it was actually a different serial killer, but similar to what was going on. So mm -hmm. you'll see what I mean when we get to that, because that's something I haven't talked to you a whole lot about. Yeah, um, yeah. Yet, okay. Anyway. So you'll get a two part episode on that. Okay. So, so, so Rob R. Thompson, um, I feel like he's, you know, probably the FBI Troy Taylor um, of the day. <laughs> well, no, he was a mental health counselor. So, well, it just uh, the, seems like somebody was the FBI next guy, but still, you know. So, but yeah, obviously, this was some kind of hobby that he had, had to have been, you know, lived somewhere nearby in the area, you know, and just got fascinated with this whole thing. And, and, you know, I mean, I give this guy a ton of credit for finding this guy in yep. a little town like this. I mean, how many newspapers do you think there were? Some probably around the area, but I know they didn't have one locally. So yeah. this guy really did some research here. Well, how do, how do you, so, okay, so you've already talked about how you went from, you know, microfiche and all that stuff to like yeah. the internet and stuff, but well, how would you do research before it just door knocking and talking to people? No, like, I mean, you know, they're, they're, the newspapers were all still there. I mean, it's just the, the reason they got put onto microfiche is because people transferred the physical papers onto those screens so that they could be accessed. So, I mean, even if, and, and I'm going to say he probably had microfiche to work by based on the the age of when he started working. On oh, this. okay. But, okay. Uh, but okay. even that, even before that, you could still go through newspaper files. You just had to go to that newspaper office to do it. And gotcha. then you'd have to go through and I've seen them. I mean, I've, I've seen them. They're gigantic books uh -huh. and the newspapers are all laid out inside the entire newspaper in each page is, and then you, you know, flip this date and this date and they were massive. I mean, they were a good, you know, two and a half, well, the size of a newspaper. Right, and right, they right. And bound books like that, and they would have just hundreds of them until they ran out of room, and then people just throw that shit away. 
Of course. So they started coming up with ideas. They could shrink that stuff down and store it, which is how it ended up on Microfish. Uh And then now that's how stuff has ended up online. Now we've got the computer, you know, we've got the documents, the PDF files we can go through, which has been, you know, the greatest. I mean, that's the best thing ever. And yeah, now we just make data smaller and smaller and smaller Uh and smaller. Until it fits somewhere else. Yeah, we could thank the aliens that crashed at Roswell for that, so. Just kidding. I'm just kidding. So I, I I did a presentation have... on monsters last night, so I'm still in a weird headspace. I love that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You you'd probably Big be totally normal you know, if, you, so. if you didn't do that. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Well, I'd like to give a quick shout out to our new um, uh, s- supporters on Patreon. So thank you very much for supporting the show. To uh, Cindy, and again, if you know you su- subscribe on Patreon, you get. Uh, a whole you know new series yeah. like mini series yeah. of and yeah. shirts we are and getting ready and i am already putting together all the research for the next season of our special patreon podcast it's it's ready i mean mm-hmm. i've got it together but i'm still putting some things together but it's coming soon so we'll make a big announcement when the time comes i'll Hell probably yeah. do a trailer for it like we do the other one just for fun I so i'll it. put something together soon and then we can get that rolling too so I can't wait. Well, it is now time for our ghostwriter segment. If you have a question or comment about the world of the macabre, you can email us at AmericanHauntingsPodcast at gmail.com. This email comes to us from John, and John writes, the title is Season Suggestion in New Orleans Redo. It says, have you all considered doing a season on American maritime disasters, legends, and ensuing ghost tales of the Atlantic, Gulf Pacific, and fresh Great Lakes coast? Carried by seamen, these stories have surely added their DNA to fertile landscape of American hauntings. Just a Okay, thought. I see what he did there. Uh-huh. Yeah. Semen, DNA, and yep. fertile. Yep. I try. I, I wasn't going to bring it up. I was trying not to laugh. And <laughs> says also, I went back through the New Orleans podcast and agree. Cafe Beignet does, does serve up better beignets than Cafe Dumont. One of yep. New Orleans' dirty little culinary secrets. Also, what do you guys think of uh, Mufaletta sandwiches? Oh, see, I'm not a big olive eater, so we didn't. Oh, I, love, I don't think I we love had olives. any. When we were down there, well, I couldn't, when we were down there this summer, Central Gro- Grocery was closed for remodeling. Oh. So that's nobody got, well, no, but that's the, be- I mean, you can get them other places, but that's the best place where they invented them. Okay. It's like smashed olive spread. I'm not, I'm not a fan, but you I probably would have liked it. I eat green olives pr- almost yeah. like every day. I love oh, them so much. God, I don't know if that's, then, so. oh man. Well, next time. So Next time. There will be a yeah. next time. Uh, well, Troy, that look, that was short, sweet, to the point, aside from all the other bullshit we talked about before <laughs> the episode. Um, but yeah, there's just another tale of a crazy madman and just yeah, yeah. shows that yeah. most monsters are human. That's what it shows. Yeah. Next week. Uh, next week is one that uh, next week's a heartbreaker. So you're not going. Oh, like great. So. I can't wait. I'll make sure I'm in a good headspace before I open up your. Yeah, your doc. it's a Maybe depressing I'll, one next. I'll week. exercise. I'll take my vitamins, and then I'll read your stuff so I don't uh-huh. cry a whole bunch. <laughs> well, that's all I got, man. Okay. All right. Sounds good. Well, I guess we'll wrap it up. So, guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, leave us a review on iTunes. Get your friends to leave us reviews on iTunes. Uh, it adds up. Helps people find the show. Uh, don't forget, if you check out our website at AmericanHauntings.net and you buy anything from there, like the brand new edition of Haunted Alton or the new Morbid Curious or whatever, make sure you use that podcast discount code when you check out. It's just podcast, and uh, that's all you got to do. Put that in the promo codes. gives you 10% off. 
Uh, check out our Patreon page, patreon.com slash American Hauntings. We're going to have the next season of the Patreon-only podcast coming very, very soon. Uh, so check that out, too. And uh, until next time, we'll talk to you later. Hell yeah. This episode of the American Hauntings podcast was written by Troy Taylor. You know, and since we didn't have a lot of time, I was, I'm not going to interrupt you. This time. It was produced and so, edited well, by we me. We don't have a lot of time. Cody Beck. So I thought I should probably just be quiet. Music for this season is performed by Maggie Leno. <laughs> no, I see what you're doing. Um, <laughs> semen, fertile. Yeah, I get it. Um, uh, I, you, didn't, you, I didn't see that. You can find more about his music writer. and upcoming shows on this Twitter, show Instagram, Bandcamp, SoundCloud, Facebook. That's again, that's Packy Lundholm. You can find us on most of those places too. Plus you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher. Oh, check out Amazon Music. We're supposed to be featured oh, on yeah, there. Oh yeah, Amazon Music. That's right. Uh, starting yesterday, if you're listening to this the day it comes oh, out. Oh, now we got to get a screenshot of that. We and I will, yeah, yeah. So yeah, check Amazon Check Music for a featured podcast. Right? That's awesome. How did that happen? Yeah, um, I don't yeah. know. I don't know how that happened, but hey, yeah. whatever. Jump on. You know you have an Amazon account, so jump on there and leave us a review. Oh, yeah, everybody. It's free, and Amazon Why Music not? is free. So, yeah, um, you can find the website AmericanHauntingsPodcast.com for more info uh, about the show, notes, photos, links, and more. Thanks for listening. We couldn't, definitely wouldn't do it without you. So until next time, goodbye. Bye, so long. See you later. Adios. Oh, all right. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that. I forget we're very limited on time on your No, 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 no. I think it's perfect because then it kind of forces us into it a does. box where it's like...